God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on MyBridge Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from Carney E. Free. Here's Pastor Adrian Boykin. Well, this morning we're going to look at a couple parables, again in Matthew chapter 13, where these two men find these great treasures. And remember, a parable is this earthy illustration that Jesus gives in a way that people can easily understand it, but it's an earthy illustration of something about God or something about God's kingdom conveyed through the fabric of life. And what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 13 is he's dropping one of these parables after another after another. He's just like the most brilliant teacher who's ever lived. We oftentimes don't think of Jesus that way, but he was. He's the most brilliant teacher that ever lived. Like, try to come up with your own parable. It's really, really hard to do. And one after another, he drops seven of them in a row in Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at two of them very briefly this morning. Let your eyes sit now on Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven, which is also the same as the kingdom of God, two terms that are synonymous in Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and he sold all he had, and he went and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything he had, and he bought it. These two parables both have basically the same point. They're simple and easy to understand. In essence, it's this. These two men, the merchant and the excavator, they find great treasures, and they recognize that these treasures are far more valuable than anything they had before, and so they sell other things they have so that they can get these treasures. They find great joy in these treasures, and so they willingly are able to sacrifice, willing to sacrifice other things to get them. Now, these Parables deserve a little bit of context because it's a very different context in the first century than it is for us. You might be asking, why would they find treasures in a field? Well, in the ancient world, in the first century world, there were no banks, at least as we think of them today. And so a very common practice was families would take their gold or their finest treasures and they would bury them a couple feet underneath the surface of the ground. And especially so if there's any conflict between one's own village and another village or another tribe. And perhaps the conflict bubbles up to the surface. And as another army is approaching, the first thing that family would do is hide their treasure in a field where only they know where that treasure is. In the hopes that perhaps they would survive that invasion. And even if they lose their house, they can come back and they can still get their treasure. What frequently happened is a village would be razed to the ground. And then someone else would come upon that land and they wouldn't know. They wouldn't realize that right underneath their feet was a golden treasure. And this also is a parable for us with respect to the kingdom of God. Oftentimes, the reality of the kingdom of God amongst us, the reality of the kingdom of the heavens that has come down in Jesus Christ is right amongst us and frequently we don't even notice it, right? It's at our feet, it's at our fingertips, but oftentimes we're so mired in the stuff of this world that we don't even notice it. It goes overlooked. 
And so you'd imagine today, maybe a traveler is walking through the open fields of Egypt, and as he finds a nice plot of land to tent, to put up his tent for the evening, after a long day's journey, he starts to dig. And he gets a couple feet underneath the surface, and as he gets a couple feet down there, his shovel hits a box. As it hits that wood, he decides to dig a little bit more. And eventually he pulls this box up and he opens it up and he realizes inside is this treasure of an unclaimed Powerball ticket that goes for a $1 billion Powerball prize. What does he do? Okay, this is what Jesus is appealing to. He's just appealing to like kind of basic human nature. He's saying any ordinary man or woman with half a brain in this moment would say this is far more valuable than anything I have. And so I'll sell other things that I have so I can get this treasure. You see, Jesus is inviting us to ask, what is so valuable to you that you would sacrifice everything else to get it? What's so valuable to you that you would sacrifice everything else to keep it? That's what he's inviting us to ask. And then Jesus would say, but far greater than that treasure, whatever it is for you, is the treasure of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Here's the first idea if you're following along with me in the notes. The treasure is the gospel and life in the kingdom of God right now. The treasure that God offers to us is not material things. It's not your best life now. It's not health and wealth. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ and life that is available in a different kind of world than this world system, life in the kingdom of God right now. We use the term gospel a lot, but oftentimes we don't define it. Let me just take a moment to offer my definition for the gospel. You might have your own, but as I read the New Testament, here I think is a fair definition for the gospel that we receive when we believe on Christ, when we repent of our sins and trust him as our savior and our Lord. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which freely forgives us of our sins, which regenerates us, gives us spiritual renewal, spiritual rebirth, that once we were dead and now we are spiritually reborn, and then it invites us into God's family, it welcomes us into God's family with all of his embrace. Now, if you believe that, that you are totally forgiven from first to last, that there is an old you that is no more, that it's now regenerated, that you're welcomed into God's family, and no matter what anyone else might do to you, your God will never leave you or forsake you, and you are purchased by the blood of Jesus, you would say, yes, that is good news of great joy. Okay? That's good news of great joy. I want that. Yes, please. You would do that for me, Lord Jesus? Yes, he would. And he'd do it for you. He'd do it for all of us by name. That's the reason that Jesus went to the cross to invite us to this gospel truth and with it life in the kingdom of God. These two parables have the same basic point. Again, in one parable, this excavator finds this great treasure. and the other, a salesman finds the finest of pearls. But what I want you to notice is neither of these two earn the treasure they find, do they? They receive it. The excavator is digging, and there's this treasure. He didn't earn it in any way. The salesman didn't create the pearl, so to speak. This pearl is presented to him, and so also the gospel. 
by God's grace, is freely extended to us, not based on any effort on our behalf, but freely a gift from God that we merely say, thank you, God, for giving me this great gift, and we receive it with gratitude. We rejoice out of it. The treasure is the gospel that saves us from our sins, that saves us for eternity, but the treasure is also the reality of living in the kingdom of God right now. And one of my great burdens as a pastor is this fact that I see a lot of Christians just believing that God has saved me from my past sins and I gotta kinda grin and bear it till I get to heaven. And that's a short end of the good news. It's a truncated version of the good news. The full version of the good news is we are also invited into a different kind of life and a different kind of world in the kingdom of God right now where things are just a whole lot different than the kingdoms of this world. Like what if I told you that you could live in a place with the people that are so rock solid that they genuinely cared far more about the inside than they cared about the outside? What if I told you that you're invited into a place with a people who didn't judge on the basis of externals, but instead they offered good news to people who are beat down and brokenhearted and they never discriminated? What if I told you you're invited to a people who showed no favoritism between rich and poor or any other group? People so filled with love that anger and lust simply don't have a place in their lives. When they come in, they quickly fight against them. Invited into a people that are so freed by the gospel, they can even love those who hate them and pray for those who persecute them. A community where people would do things like fasting, and praying, and practicing generosity, never to be seen for the religiosity, but always because they hungered for more of God. What if we were invited to that kind of place? A place where people trusted Christ so much that they actually believe all will ultimately be well in the world, and therefore worry is exceedingly rare. Friends, would you like to be a part of that kind of place? Man, sign me up for that. And that's the kingdom of God, which is available, as Jesus said, as we began this series nine weeks ago, the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry is repent and believe the good news of God for the kingdom of God is now at hand. We're invited into that, my friends. No matter your background, no matter your religious experience or inexperience, no matter how much you've loved the church or hated the church, no matter what you've thought about God in the past, no matter your failures, no matter your successes, no matter your current temptations, no matter how often you've fallen down on your face, you are invited today to new life in Jesus Christ and through it, new life today in the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying is that when we find that treasure, when you get that treasure into you, then nothing else compares to that. Nothing else compares. I've had a lot, of a, a lot of other treasures in this world. I've been fortunate to live a rather charmed life. Nothing compares to this. Please hear me. The result of finding the treasure is joy. We're intended to live in a joyful kingdom. We may not experience joy all the time, but God intends us to experience his joy. I'm personally convinced that many times Christians lack joy simply because we forget how good this message is. 
And we get so mired in the things of this world. We get so surrounded by all the frustrations of this world. And we dig into those so much that inevitably we forget the goodness of this message. I want you to notice what the man does when he finds the treasure in the field. Verse 44, when the man found it, when he found the gospel and the kingdom, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went out and he sold all he had so that he would buy that field. You got to notice this. In his joy, he gives up other things so he can grasp the beauty of the kingdom. Please understand the implication of this. If you want to grasp the beauty of the kingdom, you got to loosen your grip on some of the stale goodies of this world. But the trouble is, all of us, including me on stage, love the stale goodies of this world a little bit too much. We clamor for the approval of mere mortals so much that sometimes we couldn't even hear the whisper of God. We want status so much that sometimes we lose the basic joy of being with people who have no status. We want to be sexually close with anyone. And so we lose the joy of lifelong commitment to someone. We're far too easily pleased. Friends, to grab on to the joy of the kingdom, I'm just going to say it one more time. We have to loosen our grip on some of the goodies of this world. C.T. Studd is this amazing missionary he's passed on now from England that spent his life mostly in the Belgian Congo, but also in India, gave his life for the gospel, simple, ordinary man, and he was often asked, how did you give up so much and then devote yourself to serving people in developing nations? You gave up all for the gospel, and he would reply, like, he would, he would reply with this, when I came to see that Jesus Christ had died for me, it didn't seem too hard to give up all for him. It just seemed common, ordinary honesty. Oof. Like the most ordinary thing to do when you realize how much Jesus has done for you is to give up all for him. That's just being honest to the reality of the gospel. But we all need to wrestle with the fact that we are pulled in to this world with all of its goodies. I wanna give you a quick contrast between two men in the Bible, one who saw the gospel, saw the kingdom, and said, I'm gonna give everything for that. Another one who saw the gospel, saw the kingdom, and said, I'm not sure if I can give up much for that. I want it, but I'm not sure if I can give up what Jesus wants me to give up for that. The first is a man that you'll know, his name was the Apostle Paul. And we sometimes forget that the Apostle Paul was educated in like the Harvard of his day. And he was trilingual and he was utterly brilliant. He was a type A driven leader. He was a man's man in every sense of the word. He got things done. And he was more than respectable amongst his people. He came from the top class Jewish heritage. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. With regard to the law, the Jewish law, he was faultless. He even persecuted those who were against the Jewish faith. He had everything to his credit, and he regularly puffed out his chest and boasted in all that he had by every worldly perspective. But then he encountered Jesus. 
He encountered the cross, and Jesus brought him to his knees. And reflecting on it all in Philippians chapter 3, he says this, Whatever were gains to me, whatever was to my profit, I now count loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ. Why did he do that? Like, why did he forsake his badges, his medals, his trophies, and his status? Because he realized it's nothing compared to the gospel. He realized, like, none of those things matter. Like, when you encounter Christ, the natural response is humility, isn't it? Like, the natural response in encountering Christ is that's the most beautiful man who has ever lived. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Lord over all. He invites me to his kingdom. He died for me. And so why would I even dare boasting in myself? Now, here's the contrast. You flip forward five or six pages in your Bible to Matthew chapter 19, and you'll see another man who comes to Jesus, and apparently he loves God. In fact, he comes to Jesus, and he tells him his resume. Just as Apostle Paul had that great resume, so also this man has a great resume. And with respect to the Jewish law, he also is faultless. And he says to Jesus, listen, here's the Ten Commandments. I follow all of them. And maybe you remember that Jesus saw into this man's heart. And we would be wise to reflect upon his story and remember that Jesus looks into every man or woman's heart and he sees it perfectly. He's omniscient. And he knows what we really value. And so this man's coming to Jesus and he says, can I follow you? Can I be your follower? Can I have a place in the kingdom of God? And maybe you remember what Jesus said to this rich young ruler. He said, I see what's in your heart, so first, go sell your possessions and give all that you make to the poor, and then after you do that, you can come follow me. And to me, like one of the most haunting lines of the entire Bible is Matthew 19, verse 22. When this man who apparently loved God He encounters Jesus and what Jesus demands of him. And his response is, he went away sad. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And he had to admit, honestly, I love my wealth more than I love God. And that's the end of his story. Now what this should do for us is force us to ask the question, what do I treasure more than I treasure the gospel? in the kingdom of God. Is there anything that I treasure more than the gospel in the kingdom of God? Really, honestly, to grab the joy of the kingdom, we'll have to loosen our grip on some of the pleasures of this world. But then the joy of the kingdom can be ours. I want to just close here for the, the next several moments to, uh, to share with you a few things that you can do to increasingly grasp on to this treasure and to live in this joyful kingdom. And uh, I'm just gonna share with you some things that work for me. In general, I'm a joyful person, but not always. And I'll share with you a little secret just amongst us friends, okay? I have a melancholy streak. My close friends know that I have a melancholy streak. And in a way, I'm grateful for that melancholy because it enables me to mourn with those who mourn. And I'm grateful for that melancholy because it's a spark of creativity in me. But at other times, it's not good. It can lead me to negativity. It can lead me to joylessness if I'm not careful. 
And so what I'm about to tell you, included in this, is the admission that I have to fight for joy too. It's not easy because I'm a pastor. A lot of days I have joy naturally, a lot of days I have to fight for it. So here's a number of ways that I fight for joy when I feel that melancholy streak in my soul starting to take root. The first thing that you need to do is memorize and personalize the gospel. Friends, we have to preach the gospel message to ourselves on a daily basis. Sunday morning is not enough. I'm amazed as I talk to Christians how often Christians cannot articulate the basic gospel message and apply it to their own lives. You want to memorize and personalize the gospel with your name on it. So it's the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died for me to forgive Adrian by name, to regenerate me, to give me new life, to give me welcome into God's family with all of his embrace. And if God is for me, who can be against me? And because he'll never leave me or never forsake me, I can make it through the deep trials that are endemic to being in this world. You've got to memorize and personalize the gospel for your own life. Second, personalize a favorite verse or two. Take a favorite verse or two. I talk a lot about memorizing scripture, but maybe even more powerful than that is putting your name into scripture. So Ephesians 3, verses 17 and 18 are two for me. They say this, I pray that you, Adrian, being rooted and established in God's love, may have power to know how high and how deep and how long and how wide is the love of God for you which surpasses all knowledge, that you would have power to know that, Adrian. And then I just pray through that. And this reminds me that the scriptures are true for me. The basic gospel message and the beauty of God's love is true for me. Here's something else that you can do. You can read the gospels and just take note of how joyful and warm Jesus was even as he was constantly interrupted. You like being interrupted? Okay, me neither. (laughs) But Jesus was warm and joyful even in the midst of it. Repent of sin daily. Sin brings pleasure, but sin prevents joy. So repent of your sin daily. Likewise, resist the devil, crucify the flesh, stop loving the world. Stop loving the world. Fast regularly. And when you fast from things that you love, what it does is it creates a vacuum for the things of God to come in and fill those vacuums. Your your heart for God, your hunger for God can grow as you fast from things that you love in this world. You want to make the decision to win the battle for your thoughts each and every morning. If you struggle with sadness, if you struggle with anxiety, if you struggle with melancholy, as I sometimes do, you have to make the decision to win the battle for your thoughts each morning. When I have melancholy, here's what I do. I wake up and I put my feet on the side of the bed or else I just fall to my knees and I put my hand on my heart and I feel my heart beat. And if it's not beating, I call 911. Okay, I don't pray at that moment, I just call 911. But if it's beating, I say, thank you, God, for another day. Thank you, Lord, that you chose to wake me up again. Thank you, Lord, for another day. I receive this day from you, and I give this day back to you. And I dwell on that for a few moments, and then I move forward. Then what I'll oftentimes do is I'll take out my prayer journal, and I'll write five simple things that I'm grateful for. 
I practice gratitude. Write down five simple things that you're grateful for in the morning. From there, I take up my Bible and I do a short time of Bible devotion. Maybe you have a devotional, that's fine. Devotion and prayer before phone. Make that a daily habit. Devotion and prayer before phone. That is winning the battle for your mind. While you're doing that, watch less TV, ingest much less social media, much less internet throughout the day. Why is that? Because most of it is negative and it also fuels our covetousness, our comparison. What do advertisers want to do? They want to make you believe you need stuff that you don't yet have. So they create this comparison in the soul. And what is comparison? It's a thief of joy. This is part of how you win your thoughts and say, less TV, less screen time, more God, more time in nature, more time in God's creation. You breathe in God's creation. You stand in the beauty that he's made. That produces joy. Here's a few others. Encourage someone else. This gets you out of yourself. Serve someone else. This gets you out of yourself. Give your money to someone else. This gets you out of yourself. Share the gospel with someone else. It's still the hope of the world, and it gets you out of yourself. Smile at people. Smiling is a natural drug for our brain. It lights up our brain in a good way. You know, the power of smiling is this. If you give a smile, what's coming back at you? A smile. You reap what you sow. If you give a frown, what's coming back at you? Okay, you reap what you sow. Before you go to bed, take five minutes to reflect upon your day and give thanks to God for small graces in that day. Practice the Sabbath. Relax. Take a deep breath. Be refreshed. Pray and play. Enjoy one full day off every week as God commands us to do. Breathe deeply. Open your hands to God. Ask how God wants you to change. And then begin praying for God to change you in that area. Jesus says this in John chapter 15. He says, remain in my love, obey my commands, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. We abide in Jesus. We obey everything that he says. We ask for him to change us. And then obedience and abundance go together. Remain, obey, enjoy. That's what Jesus is saying there. Okay, so we ask God to change us in areas of need, and then we commit ourselves to following him there. And then finally, last one is this. Reflect on how God is changing you now. When we pause and we reflect on ways that God is changing us right now, or perhaps ways that God has changed us over the last year or two, that reminds us that we are indeed living in the kingdom of God. Okay, that we've already passed over the river. We're now in the promised land. We're now in the land flowing with milk and honey. And in that land that's flowing with milk and honey, we are in the kingdom of God, and in the kingdom of God, right in the middle of us is the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit dwells in us, he's the vine, okay? Jesus is the vine, and from that vine comes these branches, and out of these branches can be these beautiful clusters of joy. These beautiful clusters of peace, and love, and faithfulness, and yes, joy can grow from our branches because we're in the kingdom of God where Jesus reigns today, his Holy Spirit is in us and he's conforming us more and more to his likeness. We taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Adrian Boykin from Carney E. Free. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net.